Hi, friends, and welcome to another episode of the End of Sport podcast. Uh, my name is Nathan Coleman Lamb, and I'm joined today by Johanna Mellis. Hi, Johanna. Hi, everyone. Uh, and Derek Silva. Hi, Derek. Hey. Uh, and we're going to have the great pleasure of sharing an interview with you today uh, with Cleveland Browns fullback Johnny Stanton, uh, where we have the chance to talk to him about really uh, every issue we could think of when it came to the questions around um, gender, race, labor, uh, and college football and NFL football. Um, so we really tried to kind of to to pick Johnny's brain on what it's like to be um, in the locker rooms as the world uh, around them sort of is constantly deconstructing the politics of um, football. Because I mean, these days that has been, you know, the, the front page of, you know, ESPN or whatever, we're talking Aaron Rodgers, we're talking NFL race norming, um, we're talking about John Gruden and the Washington football team. I mean, right? Like we're constantly talking about NFL-related issues right now. Um, and I think one thing that sort of emerged from our conversation that was interesting to me is like, what, what is it like then to be a player in the middle of that, right? Like, what are, what are you thinking about um, as you're trying to do your job? Um, but I, I want to know what you two are thinking about when it comes to some of these issues in the NFL this year. Anything kind of particularly caught your attention? Well, it's, it's just been, it's been another year of things that are happening in football are happening everywhere. Um, and it's, it's hard for me to even say football is a special case or there are special things happening in football or anything is like particularly, um, important coming out of the football world because we're seeing this across sports. We're seeing this in almost every sport. It feels like we're just like experiencing kind of the reality of what it's like to work and, uh, and to live in these conditions. And, and we're just seeing the, the sort of just people telling on themselves for a system that's been long overdue and, and, and has long endorsed these things. Um, so yeah, like I think the NFL gets a lot of media attention and like the John Gruden stuff was important and, and it was really, um, shameful to see, but, this stuff is like, it's happening everywhere. Yeah. I mean, that's just what I was going to say is that the, 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 the focus, the spotlight is on football for reasons that we have talked about plenty. Um, but like, but like Derek said, they're, they're literally everywhere. And, you know, the, even the, the question that we, and, and listeners will hear this, you know, we, we ask him, you know, how, how sort of, what have been the sort of the team reactions on his team that he's witnessed to a bunch of the stuff that's gone on from, you know, like Gruden's emails to, um, you know, lots of other things. And, you know, what is the kind of locker room culture like on the teams he's been on when it comes to like issues of racism and homophobia and, and, and mis misogyny? And, you know, again, these are things that we tend to associate with football, but then there's this massive story in hockey. I mean, there are so many stories in other sports, but to offer an example, there's like the issue with Danvers High School, um, I think, which is outside of Boston. I know it's in Massachusetts with their hockey team, you know, having, you know, one day of the week where they would force players to say the N-word or they got welted uh, by a plastic blown up sex doll. Um, and then the, the, the other days where the other day of the week where the, the, the boys were supposed to strip 
and the lights were turned off and then they were supposed to guess who touched them, you know? So like these things are just, you know, they're absolutely endemic to, I think every most locker rooms. And so again, when we sort of hear about certain stories in the NFL, we tend to think that it's like an isolated case. But again, when we take a step back and look at everything that's going on in all sports, it really is baked into the bedrock of our, of our sports system. Um, so yeah, I just think that's kind of one, one takeaway that I had from it. No, that's a, that's a really good point, Johanna. Like thinking, I was, I was finding this thinking about the other hockey story that's so prominent right now with the, the Chicago hockey team, um, mm-hmm. and Kyle Beach's traumatic experiences on that mm-hmm. team in 2010. Um, and when you really start to break down some of the dynamics in, in, in the context like that, you know, we're talking about, this is what you were kind of getting at with this question of hazing, for instance, right? Um, mm-hmm. And what you see in a sport like hockey, what I've seen in my research is um, when you make these demands in terms of violence of people, right? When you um, have these identity forming practices like hazing that require people to completely abandon their own sense of self, their own instincts for what is right and wrong, right? Because they have to assume this, the team's ethos, um, they have to follow uh, the discipline of the team and do what the team demands of them. Um, if you're an enforcer that as a hockey player, right, that literally means in some cases you're an elite, you're an elite you're an elite scoring hockey player. That's what you are, right? Or you're an elite defender. Um, you don't come up trying to fight. That's not what makes you a good hockey player. But at a certain point, to continue your career, you have to fight. They'll tell you the only way you can stick around is if you take on this role of enforcer. Um, and that's, it's a role. That's the key word. It's a role. It's a performance. You have to become this different person. It's not who you were originally. And you know, one of the players, especially who I talked to in my research, you know, he described the terror he experienced just thinking ahead to the season and the fights he would have to have in front of 20,000 people and how traumatic it was that his off-season wasn't an off-season because he was sort of haunted by this waking nightmare. Um, to me, like all of this evidence that we're seeing, it's, it's all part of that same phenomenon where you're you're asking people to transform who they are into this other thing and ultimately like this is fueling business right um it's fueling a political economy grounded in this kind of spectacle this spectacle of violence um but you know this is what you both have said it's not just football it's not just hockey i mean as i was thinking about this with the reason why i wanted to bring this up as i was thinking about this in the nhl example i was also thinking about usa gymnastics right and like Mm -hmm. the incredible resonance there but the ways in which those young women um, at the Carolis camp and subjected to Larry Nassar, how they also had to go through this process where they were not allowed to be themselves, right? They had to abandon every instinct they had for what they were should be allowed to eat, what was considered abusive, right? Like who they were as human beings. They were told relentlessly that their, their self-image, their self-assessment was wrong. And they had to become something completely different in order to satisfy the demands of the sport, the performance imperatives, their coaches' requirements. Um, And it does say something profoundly dispiriting about our elite sports systems, that they are making these kinds of demands of the participants. There is something fundamentally dehumanizing about that. And, and, you know, I think, too, to sort of think through, which we, we do hear from Johnny about, is sort of like, what are the reasons why athletes continue to, to do this? 
you know, like what are the what are the the forces at work? What are the the ideas, the pressures that that influence people to continue to do it? Um, I just think this is something we're going to continue to grapple with because if it were, if if the pressures were not as great as they are, then it wouldn't. Then ostensibly, maybe it wouldn't be that hard for athletes to walk away, right? But but like because the pressures are there. Um, plus at, you know, athletes love what they do, right? When you, when you love what you do and when you have these dreams for yourself, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's hard to kind of do away with that. And it, and it can, and, you know, should, should we require that of, of athletes that have spent their whole lives dedicated to this project? I don't know. Um, I think that's something that I, that I, you know, continue to grapple with, uh, but I found that to be a really interesting conversation. Yeah, there's a way in which that love is made to abet the exploitation, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's easier to exploit people when they have such a profound investment in what they're doing. And we've talked about that in different ways. Like one way we, we like to use the language of structural coercion, right? Mm-hmm. One aspect is if you, your material consequ- context makes it necessary for you to pursue this kind of golden carrot, of course, that's going to have an impact on the choices and and your willingness to quote unquote, sign up for it. But like what you're pointing to, Johanna, is like the ideological dimension as well, right? And it's part, I mean, ideological is one way of coding it, which is to say like, well, yeah, yeah, you're taught to love this thing and be invested in it. But like, that's not the only thing you're pointing to something even more profound, really, which is like, no, sometimes you actually do love the thing like it's literally mm-hmm. is the thing that you want to do um and so then it's it's even harder to give up i mean and, and these are all layers that make it hard to give the thing up and if it's hard to give mm-hmm. up then more can be demanded of you and it is right. yeah definitely all right well with that said uh, we're going to turn it to the interview with uh, johnny stanton of the cleveland browns uh, please, uh, if you haven't already, please subscribe to the show. Please rate and review on Apple Podcasts and any other podcast platform. Please tell your friends about the show. Uh, and, uh, you know, follow us on social media. Follow us on Twitter at End of Sport Pod. And enjoy. Johnny Stanton is a fullback on the Cleveland Browns and former UNLV football player. He is also an athlete, ally, professional ambassador. Johnny, it is a great pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks for having me on. Well, okay, we got a lot that we want to get through. Uh, Not a ton of time, so we're going to dive right into this. And the first question, let's get into the athlete ally stuff. Can you tell us how you got involved with the organization? Uh, and why it was important to you to speak out about LGBTQI plus rights, including having your pronouns in your profile, which I think as people realize is not very common for a professional athlete, especially in football. Uh, how have people reacted to that? Thanks. Um, yeah, I mean, for the first question, a- Athlete Ally was something that came to me um, or uh, was I, I, I noticed it in 2018 when I was uh, recovering from an injury that I had when I was with the Vikings in the preseason. Uh, I knew that I wanted to get involved with some... Uh, some causes while I was recovering. I didn't want to just be sitting at home and, you know, working on one thing while not being able to improve in other areas, I guess, or make a, make a difference in other areas. Um, one of the first, uh, uh, 
besides uh, the Jesse Reese Foundation, which is another uh, foundation that I, I'm involved with very closely, uh, Athlete Ally was the other one that jumped out to me, and it made the most sense. I mean, they 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 run the organization really well. Uh, I know a few other athletes who are, are part of that organization, and when I found out that there was a chance to be able to, to become an ambassador for them, I uh, I jumped at it. Uh, I knew that being an uh, an LGBTQ ally is something that I've wanted to be more um, vocal and visual about. And uh, th- they gave me the opportunity to really learn more about how to be a better ally and give me the opportunity to, uh, to really show it. Um, as far as the pronouns in my bio, um, it kind of, you know, I, I decided to do it last year. You know, it's like, m- for most people, it's like, yeah, whatever. <laughs> like, it's not, not a big decision. Uh, but I don't, you know, I, I don't remember seeing other uh, athletes do that, um, do that sort of thing. And I wasn't trying to be any kind of... Um, like seal breaker or anything, any kind of big deal. I just quietly put it up there. And the only time I think people really noticed it was when somebody tried to, uh, tried to like make fun of me for it or something. And Absolutely. I, and it's now my pinned tweet for, you know, almost a year now and has, uh, one of the most, um, one of the most, uh, impressions and, and uh, interactions on my, on my Twitter, because, uh, it, it just goes to show, um, I think people have been kind of waiting for an athlete to, to speak up and to really show that, um, more um, progressive side and to be able to support in that way. Absolutely. And, and so one thing we would like to hear from you about is kind of what locker room culture is like right now when it comes to issues of gender and sexuality. To what extent, for example, is uh, our misogynistic and homophobic language still a fairly common and maybe even casual part of locker room conversation as it certainly seems to be in a lot of the public or fan discourse. Yeah, I mean, personally, I'm not really able to speak on uh, any other team than than my my own and the locker room that I've spent two years in. Um, it's uh, you know, I'm sure that there are there are issues in, in around sports. You know, it being football, it being you know basketball, baseball, whatever. There are still some. Um, regressive like, uh, ideas. But, uh, in terms of the things that I've experienced, our, our locker room, I think is, um, much, uh, much more accepting of that, um, than people might be expecting, especially with, uh, Carl Nassib, uh, coming out this season, I haven't heard anything but support for him. So, uh, as far as the experience that I've seen, um, and, and have heard around the league, I, you know, it's not really something that's, that's discussed too much, which, you know, necessarily isn't necessarily a, um, you know, a shining example of, of the, of, of what's, what's good, but it's, uh, you know, I haven't heard anything necessarily that's outright bad. Yeah, I mean, that, that's encouraging to hear because I think that even like a, a decade ago, it would have been pretty hard to find any locker room that you could sort of speak um, that confidently about in the way that you have, right? Like, as you say, it's, it's, it's unlikely that you're going to see um, uh, like a football locker room as the vanguard of um, kind of inclusion when it comes to issues around gender and sexuality but i mean to see it as a space where it's like a kind of a non-issue and a non-factor i mean that that is absolutely the direction we want to be heading in so you know i'm I'm really pleased to hear that um let's let's shift it just a little bit because you know for for us um, we're always interested in issues around kind of labor uh, and exploitation in the context of college sports specifically and and pretty much anytime you get someone who's playing in the nfl that also means that they're a former college athlete um so we'd love to ask you just a few questions about your experiences there and also how they compare and contrast with your time in the nfl um we often make the case that college sport is exploitative given the fact that athletes generate this enormous amount of revenue for universities and yet of course see almost none of it for themselves 
Now, you've played for actually three different college programs, uh, Nebraska, Saddleback College, and UNLV, which was the last one. What are your feelings on the question of whether college athletes deserve to be paid by the institutions that they play slash work for? Yeah, there's, um, I, you know, you, you mentioned my experience at three different schools. That's kind of like you have the extreme you know, the one extreme at like Nebraska, which is, you know, power five school has a huge amount of boosters, um, uh, money going into the program. You have the other extreme, which is a local community college, <laughs> um, where, you know, there's not a whole lot of money going into the athletic program there. And then there's kind of the very middle, which is, you know, the, um, I forget what they call the non power five schools, but it's, you know, a non power five school. Like, yeah. You know, group of five, they call group it. Of yeah, five, group of five. Um, they, uh, you know, it's, I kind of have the, the, the middle and both extremes at both sides and it, you know, it's, it, it, it is obvious to me that there is a much different uh, experience for the for the athletes, uh, student athletes at every school. Um, you know, <clears throat> the money at Nebraska is obviously something that is uh, used towards improving the facilities, improving the student experience, stuff like that. But there is an there's an opulence of it. There is there is absolutely you know they they try to improve on something every year when there's almost nothing to improve on to a certain extent because otherwise you know the, the athletic program loses that money. Um, so that you know that that could obviously be going towards athletes. When you go to down to even the UNLV the, at the group of five schools, um, there isn't as much money to be going around. You know UNLV was finally able to improve their their football facility for the first time in I think probably 20 or 30 years, which is a lot in, you know, college football time. Um, and so the, the money isn't necessarily there to, to go around for everyone. Um, you know, I, th I think you're, you, you said that you're, we're going to be talking about the NIL stuff at some point, which I think is a good, um, at least starting point. Um, I think that there are ways to be able to pay the athletes that doesn't bankrupt the, the non power five schools or even the lower end of the power five schools. Um, but, you know, when you, then when you got down to the community college, the junior colleges where guys are just trying to get a chance to be able to get into the division one level or even division two level, you know, there, there really isn't the money to go around. So, you know, it's hard to make one rule to go across all levels or even at the NCAA level uh, to, to, for every single school because, you know, the UNLVs and the Nebraskas aren't at the same level. They don't have the same kind of income, same kind of fundraising. So it's, it's, you know, it's a really difficult issue and, you know, there's, I don't think there's one way to fix it, and but I, I'm, I'm at least glad that the NIL is uh, is in place to be able to at least start um, athletes to be able to get that. Because even guys at UNLV uh, who, you know, they don't have the biggest support in, in Las Vegas. It's not the biggest college town in the world. You know, it's, you know, you don't have we don't have uh, tens of thousands of people coming up to every game. Uh, but there are guys on the team who end up getting like little deals with local restaurants or with local businesses that I think is very cool and would have been, you know, a cool experience to be able to have when I was in school there. Now, you suffered a really serious injury at the end of your college career, really on the cusp of when you were auditioning for the NFL, which obviously must have posed a very serious threat, very concerning to your potential professional livelihood. Um, to what extent did that experience have any impact on your sense of the justice of, co of college athletes playing for free? Um, it's, it's a tough thing to, to think about because I don't know if I really ever considered it. Um, my second to last year in college, I ended up hurting my knee. Um, and it wasn't something that was extremely uh, debilitating. It was something that I was actually hoping to come back from that season, but I was unable to. 
Um, I think the injury that you might be talking about what happened when I was with the Vikings when I was still when I was a, a rookie and trying to get into the league when I broke my ankle. But um, as far as the whole issue as a whole, um, I don't know if if it's necessarily something that college players think about too often, and, unless they're somebody who has to has to retire because of you know too many concussions or a knee injury that they weren't able to come back from. For, you know, for instance, um, it's it's tough. I know I do know people who years after coming out of coming out of school. You know, there's an injury that, that started when they were at school and it, they they ended up having to get uh, a surgery to be able to uh, to fix it, you know, something that they had years ago. And um, they have to kind of fight tooth and nail with the athletic program to be able to actually uh, have that paid for and have them have the full therapy that they need. Um, it, you know, it's not something that uh, is something that I'm super familiar with because I didn't have to deal with it as much as... Uh, as other guys, but it's obviously something that needs some help because of the, you know, uh, the issues that the NCAA has as a whole that, you know, they're not, they're unable to, to pay or they're, you know, refusing to pay the players as much as they deserved for a a company that, you know, an institution that makes as much money as they do. So you, 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 I I think you're alluding a little bit to healthcare costs and, and, uh, at least indirectly talking about more supports, more institutional supports for, um, campus athletic workers. So I'd love, I'd love to get your view on whether or not you think that one universities owe players more support for their long-term healthcare costs, given the sort of tremendous physical toll that, that you yourself even took that's part and parcel of the football experience, a game sort of embedded and founded on violence, really. Given all that you do for the university and all that you did for um, universities, does it behoove them to cover the long-term healthcare costs of athletic laborers? Yeah, I think, um, you know, there are, there have been so many changes in the NFL's um uh, healthcare, long-term healthcare uh, issue, you know, it costs and uh, coverage o- uh, over the last few CBAs that have been agreed upon. Um, I know that there have been some improvements uh, in this most recent one, but that didn't come until the last few decades. And obviously, college is is way way behind there. You know, I think I think it's um, contingent on the whole idea of a student athlete as an a- athletic worker for for the program. Um, when you think of them as a student, somebody who is getting paid as a scholarship, um, to, to be able to play football and to, you know, for, for free, um, it, it might not be quite as obvious to, to necessarily the universities to have to pay for those, those long-term healthcare costs, even though that is, you know, absolutely what they should be doing. Um, with the NFL, if you get injured in the NFL and it's, you know, affecting you for decades down the line, there is a certain amount of, um, you know, help that you can get from the long-term healthcare, uh, you know, programs that the NFL uh, and the NFLPA have agreed upon. Um, there isn't a, stu- a union uh, for the NCAA, so it's, I don't know if that's necessarily something that's going to happen. Um, but, you know, that is something that could definitely be improved upon o- over the next few years. And it seems like the NCAA is, is moving so fast in, uh, in the direction of the players' rights and at least... Uh, they, they might even be trying to skirt around it um, rather than actually f- face it head on. But I think that it's really just a, uh, you know, a snowball that's rolling and getting bigger and bigger down the line. I think the, the players and the students and the student athletes are going to be um, having much more leverage as the years go, go forward. 
Yeah, let me let me. You mentioned the idea of a un, of unionization, and um, yeah, I'd love to follow up on that with you because that's something that we've been thinking a lot about. And I'm, I'm not sure that this crossed your radar, but um, the National Labor Relations Board, the the General Counsel, and the NLRB covers um, private institutions, but there's also sort of some some ways in which because the NCAA and also the conferences are private institutions, that much of the kind of college sport ecosystem really does fall under the purview of the NLRB. And the General Counsel of the NLRB issued a memo very recently essentially saying that college athletes are workers and do deserve union rights. Um, we've also seen legislation brought forward in Congress, um, not to say that it's necessarily going to be passed, but legislation brought forward that has also been sort of trying to, to empower athletes with those rights. Is it fair to say, just from your standpoint, I don't expect you to be kind of be an expert on the legalities of all of that, but um, is it fair to say for you, based on what you just, based on what you just articulated, that for you, one of the solutions to all of these problems we're talking about in college sport might be empowering um, college athletes through union rights? Yeah, I, I mean, I was at Nebraska um, the the season that the Northwestern players were trying to unionize. And I know okay. that it got yeah. voted down by the players, but I, I don't see that necessarily going the same direction. You know, I don't I don't I don't think it, it would fail if it if it actually happened again with uh a group of smart players on, on a single team. And then it would just snowball from there. Um, you know, I'm hoping that, like I said, I think that there are, are ways for, um, for the students to be able to start gaining that leverage. And I think it's going to, going to get harder and harder to keep that from them in the future, because, you know, there is, there, there is a possibility of a union there. And I think it's a strong possibility. Um, but as we've seen in the NFL, just having a union itself doesn't solve every single problem and doesn't get everything, everything done immediately. It's going to be, you know, if, if they do end up getting a union, it's going to be slow, uh, progress. Um, there's going to have to be the whole organizational aspect of it and who's going to be in, in charge of that. And then they need to, you know, pick and choose their battles and their priorities to be able to get a little bit done every single time that there's, you know, whatever they call it, a CBA or whatever. So it's, uh, it's slow progress, but it's progress in itself. Yeah, 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 that makes that makes a lot of sense. Um, and, and I'm getting the the impression that like, if were you to be on a college team today, and that kind of organizing was happening, that would be something that you would be supportive of. Yeah, and I, I you know, I, working with the NFLPA this last couple of years, it's definitely something that I can see myself working with long time, long term. Uh, I like the way that they they or they they work and how they you know try to get every single prep player in the NFL involved, whether you're a pra practice squad guy or if you're a starter. And it all just depends on what your um, you know, what your level of interest is in wanting to be included. Uh, and it's definitely something that I've taken interest in. Absolutely. So kind of one follow-up question that I have um, is, you know, kind of one, like, how do I say this? I, I, I have, a, I think that one of the, the many reasons why uh, maybe we're not seeing more um, college football players who are sort of unionizing, even taking advantage, you know, taking advantage of the opportunity to, to do so. Um, is sort of the lack, it might potentially be due to kind of like the lack of support, both obviously within um, college football and college athletes, but, but even beyond that. So I'm guessing I'm kind of wondering, you know, is there a world in which professional athletes could be more vocally supportive of, of athletes getting paid equitably and kind of eliminating the system of exploitation in college football? I think that's, that's probably the, the quickest way for it to be able to move forward. Um, but I don't think it's necessarily the the NFL athletes who are the ones who are going to be able to help that get done. Um, when you, if you follow the the power in college sports, you know, 
it all leads back to the boosters in itself. And I don't think, I, I don't know the numbers for these at all, but I, I don't know if the largest percentage of boosters or the largest money, uh, the largest amount of money going into programs is necessarily coming from former um, NFL players or fun, former college athletes who are, you know, in the NFL and have earned that, those, those wages. Cause I don't know if, <laughs> I, I, I don't know how much donation is actually ha- coming back into those, those programs from, um, the former athletes. So I think it's going to have to come from the inside rather than the outside because, uh, as much, as, as much as there, there might be guys who are, uh, extremely passionate about it, um, I just feel like the the schools and the NCAA institution is going to be able to drown that out. Yeah, I mean, you bring up a really excellent point about boosters, um, and and I think you're right. Part of it is sort of is I don't know. I don't know if it's even possible to convince some boosters that this is what needs to be done. But I guess I'm sort of thinking in terms of like public support, moving the public conversation even more, kind of pushing the needle, and kind of we know more than we did even like a year ago. It's sort of about the power of uh, professional athletes when it comes to like social and racial justice advocacy. Um, so yeah, I mean, regard, you know, whether kind of, uh, pro athletes advocacy, um, in support of, and on behalf of college athletes, will get, will push the needle with needle with donors. I could see it pushing the conversation when it comes to maybe fans, um, other people who are paying attention. Um, so hopefully, I mean, fingers crossed, it's really something we'd love to see more of. Yeah, absolutely. The other thing I wanted to follow with there, cause we're talking about this kind of NFL college back and forth. Um, so in interviews I've conducted with uh, former college football players, one thing that was, it was really kind of striking to me that I, I think I kept hearing from them over and over again, former college football players who were, had gone on to the NFL, was the sense of relief that they felt um, in moving, to, even though, you know, basically they were very clear on the fact that the NFL is a business. The NFL is not a business that necessarily cares about your body, your well-being, or any of that, right? It's still trying to extract as much labor from you as possible, as much value from you, right? It's not easy. It's the opposite of easy. And yet, because the demands of the NFL are so similar, frankly, to the demands of college in terms of the expectation around performance and work, but because there's no educational work attached, and, and here's the real, um, the real key point, and because you're actually earning a paycheck, they felt a tremendous sense of relief, actually, at that moment when they kind of like entered the NFL, however it was, right? Whether it's through the draft, through free agency, it's not so much about like a symbolic moment of making it, but just like the feeling of getting that paycheck was what they were talking about. They felt like it was a tremendous relief. Does that, does that kind of echo your experience? All of that is really about um, prioritizing rest. And I don't know if, if college athletics, the way that the schedule works really prioritizes that rest. You know, you have, you're getting up in the morning to go to class or you're going to, getting up in the morning to go to workout and you're really, you know, you don't have any kind of time to yourself until seven, seven o'clock at night. And then you got to go to bed in two hours to be able to wake up for your six o'clock workout or whatever. Um, and that, you know, that rest you're able to get in the NFL, not necessarily during the season, even though we do have that off day. Um, and you know, the schedule isn't quite as intense as a, um, as a college, uh, schedule is if you include classwork and, and all that, um, the NFL, you know, you, you're, you need to be able to have a certain amount of time off in the off season. And that isn't necessarily given to guys, uh, in college, you know, when you, your longest break in college is for about a month in um, between spring ball and going back to fall camp. And 
you know, the NFL itself is fighting for an even longer break. I mean, the players are, are, you know, the union at least is fighting for trying to lessen or completely eliminate that, um, th- that uh, spring ball that, w- that we have, uh, the, mi- the, the minicamp. Um, and, you know, wh- whether you're on one side of that or not, um, we still get a much bigger break than any of the college players do. And you can argue like, well, you know, they're older, they need to be able to recover uh, for a longer period of time. Or, you know, we're older, we have more experience, we can learn offenses faster. Um, you know, you, the, I don't think college kids are given necessarily the time to be able to recover as much as, as they as they should, um, they're still encouraged during those times to be able to, to work as much as possible, which, you know, as you should, it should be, it really should be, um, that motivation to be able to work in the off season should come from the inside rather than from the coaches itself. But, you know, I know from being in a college program, some certain guys are more externally motivated than internally motivated, but there is much to be said about taking that time off and to be able to get your mind off of football because it's really important and uh, it doesn't always happen at that college level when you need it. Yeah, and this actually brings up a really, um, something we've talked a lot about on the show, um, as as we've talked about already, and as you know, nil happen, name, image, likeness has happened, and obviously this is um, a sort of uh, legitimization of a basic right that has long been denied um, of, of college athletes. But I'm curious to get your thoughts on a more pointed question. And this is about the fact that this is um, essentially a form of gig work um, that is now being sort of added to the already strenuous um, football and school obligations that athletes have. And we've seen them. We're educators. We, we haven't experienced these obligations, but we've seen students who have um, who are basically working a full-time job while they're in college then going to school and now with nil instead of being paid directly by um, universities um, for their labor it's sort of being subsidized by private enterprise and and the underlying assumption there is that athletes will go out and seek their own opportunities, which to us is is essentially a form of gig work. So I'm really curious to get your experiences uh, or, or your thoughts on someone who's experienced this system and, and what you think and what are your feelings generally on NIL? Yeah, I think it's like I said before, it was the it's the right first step. It's the ability for, for players to be able to take advantage of their own uh abilities their own you know popularity um but it was an easy step you know this is no uh, b- besides maybe losing some fundraising opportunities from uh from businesses uh, that that would normally money that would normally go to the to the programs now going to the players there really isn't any kind of sacrifice that the universities have had to make uh, i know that certain certain universities uh have been able to um put players in an educational um opportunity to be able to learn more about how to take advantage of the name image likeness but uh you know that's that's a that's a minimal uh uh, sacrifice that they that they made a little a minimal commitment so something that can really help is to be able to go out and actually make those deals for them you know I, i obviously is not solve all the problems but being able to actually work as almost a marketing manager or 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 something like that would to be able to actually help you know, the maybe less uh, popular guys on the team, the guys who might not be able to make any money from name, image, and likeness and be able to go out and help them be able to make those deals could go a long way to making it a more equitable situation. 
And, you know, now we kind of want to shift to some um, questions about the NFL and in particular, uh, if I can talk right, particularly um, how players have responded to the recent scandals, namely the revelations about John Gruden's emails and his resignation. How did you and your teammates feel about how that went down? Yeah, it's it's unfortunately something that I haven't been able to talk to too many teammates about. Um, but and I haven't I haven't been able to speak to anybody with the Raiders about it because I don't I don't know any of the guys on the team. Um, it's obviously an unfortunate situation, um, something that I wish wasn't an issue still in the NFL. But obviously there might there you know there are there are some people that are are still uh, having some not so progressive thoughts about about race about uh, gender that um, is disappointing to hear. Um, I hope that the people who who are still thinking that way are revealed. I know that people are still trying to get the um, Washington football team's um, emails and stuff out. Uh, I don't know what that'll reveal. I don't not the most um, you know uh, knowledgeable about the situation, but I'm just hoping that um, you know that minds can be changed. I've seen that firsthand, and that uh, you know. Obviously, years down the line, things have been things have been coming out, and uh, people have to face the consequences of that. But I think that you know, as years go on, and all of us are learning more, even though we should have learned it a long time ago. Uh, I, I think I'm hoping that people can can learn and can be become more um, less ignorant, really, of of the the the, pl- the blights that people have to go through. Um, that you know, as a cishet white guy I don't have to necessarily deal with. Another sort of big story in the NFL this year, um, and and albeit it didn't receive as much attention as the the John Gruden email stuff, has been the issue of race norming in the concussion settlement. And, and for listeners or for anyone who doesn't know, it, it, it was revealed that black players were being evaluated as having a sort of lower inherent baseline score which is a fundamentally racist assumption and that this lower score was then being used um, importantly to deny players compensation from the settlement because it made the head trauma they suffered appear less harmful my question to you is um, is this something that players have been talking about I, I can only imagine how difficult it is to work for an employer that shows that little regard for the health and safety of workers um, and can actually like cut you from your jobs based on injury. So I'm really curious to, to get your um, take on whether or not athletes are talking about this. What, what are their pers- pers- perspectives and experiences with, with this? Yeah, I think... Um I think that story was a victim of the media circus that is the NFL and how there's a new story every single day. Uh, I think if this came out in the off season, guys would be much more knowledgeable and much more um, willing, not willing to talk about it, but uh, able to talk about it because we have a lot on our plate during the season. Um, but it is, you know, a, a very unfortunate thing. and I'm glad that it came out and I'm glad that they're changing their, um, their policy on it. Um, but it is, you know, I'm hoping that there is more to be said about it once the season is over because it is, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a rough, it's a rough thought that, you know, I think a lot of us have tried to kind of push out of our minds while we're trying to prepare for this upcoming week. Yeah. I mean, I really can't imagine. And I I mean, I had another question that's sort of related to that. and, And I feel like the answer might be kind of similar, but I always wonder, you know, at this point when I'm talking to um, football players, especially, 
you are aware at this point to, you know, whatever degree that you've looked into it, but I mean, you are aware obviously of the in increased amount of information around the harm caused by head injury, right? Um, the fact that this is like a major occupational hazard of your line of work um, and one that's very difficult to avoid if you're going to do your job the way you're supposed to do your job, right? It's like it doesn't, head injury in football doesn't come from being uh, from flawed technique or from, you know, like a lack of ability or skill or anything else. Like it's, it's part of the enterprise of football. Given our general awareness of this at this point, as someone who, you know, does this day in, day out, what do you do with that information? Like, how do you, how do you, how are you reconciling that for yourself? Um, you know, the league would, uh, partly because I'm thinking, you know, the concussion settlement tells us, right? Like, oh, well, people didn't know before about head injury in football. Like, we kind of lied to our workers, so we owe them this compensation, right? But then kind of a, a corollary of that is that, well, now after the concussion settlement, everyone does know, right? Like, now you have the information. So ostensibly, you signed up for all this. But I mean, no one actually signs up for head injury as part of their job, right? You're, you you become a professional football player because you've trained, you've invested so much, you finally have the opportunity to earn a living doing this thing that you've excelled at, right? Like almost no one says no under those circumstances. I think it's really unfair to say you've signed up for this, right? Like you didn't have an alternative of playing football, but safe. Um, I don't know. I, I'm, just, I'm just really interested in hearing your thoughts on kind of like what you do with all of that. Yeah, you know, like you said, it's... Um... This is what uh, a lot of us have trained a majority of our lives for. Um, it's, it's the opportunity of our lifetime, and you're trying to hold on to it as long as possible. I think part of the justification that at least I've used is that um, I didn't think that I was going to even be able to make the NFL, even my senior year of college. Uh, I had to you know, fight my way into the league and hold on for dear life <laughs> since, since getting here. Um, so it, it's hard to really allow that to become a factor um, when I obviously know the inherent uh, worry, the inherent, uh, you know, possibility for long-term damage. Um, but when you, when you look at the, uh, uh, the studies, it, it's, it's a really, it's such a small um, population of, of, of athletes who have actually undergone the CTE um, testing uh, after after passing away and that's the other thing is that you can only find out after passing away um it's i obviously know that it is a you know a pervasive issue in the league in football as in itself uh and you try to just use the justifications that you can to be able to to get past it um in in your own mind uh obviously i know that they're you know my my brain if i didn't play football might be different than my brain after playing football um it's not not something that i'll i'll ever know um, and it's not something that I'm really going to uh, allow to myself unless I start noticing things, you know, to be completely honest, unless I, unless I start noticing things actually different or if somebody very close to me who knows me really well notices something different in me, I'm probably going to just assume that it didn't happen um, or that it, it didn't affect me, which I know is a flawed idea in itself. But uh, it's, it's honestly just some of, the, some of the ways that some of us have to... Um, I guess, you know, cope with the, the, the knowledge that, you know, there's a chance that, uh, our brains have been damaged, uh, from this, but it's something that I, you know, playing in the NFL is something that I would never, ever give up. And 
honestly, it's, uh, it becomes an easy decision. No, and I understand that. And, that. and that's exactly why we're so concerned about holding, let's say, world of college football, right? Um, and the NFL accountable for this because if their entire business is based on you having to make those kind of choices for yourself um, and un- very understandable choices, they need to be doing the absolute maximum amount imaginable, right? To, to then take care of you for what you go through. Um, and so this is why one reason why we harped so much on those college sport questions, right? Like how is it that they're not providing healthcare, right? Long-term healthcare, et cetera. How are they not compensating players when players are enduring that kind of harm um, in order to generate revenue for them, right? Um, and especially because so many players who participate in football are doing it because it provides opportunity for themselves and their families, right? It's a, it's a, it's a way in which you can improve your life chances of everyone and, and even in your community. Uh, of course, people are going to make that choice. It's not a choice, right? It's like something that, again, you were, you were raised to do. Um, but then those responsible, who, those who benefit from that uh, and don't have to make those sacrifices, they have a massive obligation to you, I mean, my estimation, right? And that's why we want to push so hard to see them held accountable for that. Um, okay, the one last thing I want to ask you, and it's another, it's another touchy one. You've been, you've been really wonderful kind of bearing with us on. We, we're, we're, not, we're not giving you softballs here. We're, uh, we're, really, we're really giving you the big questions. But the last one is, so, so Aaron Rodgers has been in the news a lot. Um, and, and he's been in the news because um, there's this question of, vaccines and the NFL. Um, and it was sort of, it's always been a simmering issue throughout the season. It had kind of gone away a little bit as it seemed like pretty much nearly everyone was vaccinated and there was just this sort of, it had receded in the background. And then it emerged that like he, he was not vaccinated. There may or may not have been some level of deception about that status. Uh, and then there are attendant questions that emerge about you know, are you then endangering other people when you're going to press conferences without a mask and things of that nature? Um, and then he himself has spoken quite a bit since this news was revealed and, uh, really advanced, I would say a, uh, fairly anti-vaccine kind of, um, project. Um, here's the thing. I can only imagine that like, given the way that this plays out in the public sphere, there must be some tensions about this in locker rooms. Is that fair to say? Like, are people, is this something that you, folks are still grappling with week in week out i think it was at the beginning of the season and it wasn't necessarily any kind of tension but it was you know it's not hard to see who's vaccinated who's not vaccinated on the team you know guys have to wear a mask if they're if they're unvaccinated um so rather than talking about you know aaron Rodgers uh himself like i'm not going to necessarily speak on that situation i personally like am I, I listen to the experts. I, I know I am, you know, all for the vaccine, the boosters for kids, like whatever we can, because the science is there and the science isn't new, despite people, what people think it's, you know, it's there and just doing your own research without any kind of training and without any kind of base knowledge level isn't necessarily, um, the, the, the best uh, way to make your decisions. So, um, you know, I, I got the vaccine as soon as I could, and I would completely recommend every every single person I know to be able to do the same thing. But I know at this point, it's it's going to be pretty hard to be able to convince people one way or another. 
Well, Johnny Stanton, we know we've kept you um, to your time, um, so we appreciate all of the time that you've spent with us today, and we really, really are grateful and appreciative for you sharing your experiences um, in, in both college and the NFL. So thank you so much for coming on The End of Sport. Yeah, thank you so much for having me, guys.